Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? It's been very busy for us, I feel like, the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, We've been sort of looking at the housing market here in Calgary for potentially getting a new apartment. And it's all very... Castle Scream Scene. Right. It's all very up in the air. Um, We don't need to move. It's just sort of looking at what's available and seeing if we want to move to something else. So we're going through a big, like, should we stay or should we go kind of discussion. And between that ongoing discussion and the whirlwind of different places we've been looking at, it's all just a bit much. So it's left us very busy. Busy bees. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you, Sarah? Oh, I'm fine. Okay. I've had this whole week off of work, a little staycation, so I'm doing great. Yeah. I believe we have a couple new patrons to shout out at. That is correct. Uh, coming aboard as patrons of the night here at Castle Scream Scene, we have Bert George and Mallory Somerville. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Mallory. If you would like to become a patron of the night like Bert and Mallory... You can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 level, there is weekly bonus audio, and at the $10 level, there is intermittent uh, horror short fiction that I write that is exclusive to patrons. Bert, thank you for choosing us to be your Ernie. <laughs> Mallory, I don't have any pop culture references to make for you off the top of my head. But stay tuned, and perhaps by the end of the episode, my brain will have clicked into gear. Thanks so much, everyone. (laughs) So speaking of our patrons, Mm -hmm. uh, this week's movie comes to us from a patron. Nick Harold suggested we watch this movie at the same time he sent in his appeal for The Ghoul. Mm. Uh, And so we are sort of doing a retrospective episode today to go back in time to the year 1937. Uh, and we're taking a look at Yibang Gusheng, or Song at Midnight. Awesome. So Song at Midnight is often considered to be the first Chinese horror film. Mm. And it comes in a period where, for the most part, no horror movies were being made. We were unaware of this movie when Nick brought it up to us, um, because most histories of horror film will tell you that there were no horror movies being made between 36 and 39. And that's certainly true of Western cinema in North America, in uh, the UK, in Europe, for a lot of sort of market reasons that we explained in a bunch of episodes around that time, but basically just that the genre had sort of fallen out of favor financially, but also was just under so much attack from censors at the time that it was no longer really, like, worth pursuing uh, in the minds of the major movie studios. But, of course, China and the Chinese film industry was very, very removed from all of that and those market factors at the time. And so that sort of makes sense why they would maybe be trying out this genre in a period when no one else was doing it. 
Speaking of how removed China was from those uh, sort of more global markets, um, I think an important part of understanding this movie is going to be understanding the cultural context of late 1930s China, specifically Shanghai, where the movie was made. And that's, that's a lot. That's a whole lot of history and culture. But luckily, I've got you, Sarah, Yay. to walk us through kind of what was going on. Yeah, so um, just a quick disclosure. I'm not Chinese. I did take a couple of classes on Chinese culture, specifically on film and literature. So that's kind of my background in this. Um, But I don't claim to be an expert at all. Just Mm -hmm. putting that out there. Because, like, I mean, all history is pretty convoluted and complicated, but Chinese history especially is. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, Chinese history is complicated because China is very big and has a lot going on all the time. And depending on who you talk to, some things didn't actually happen. Right, yeah, it's it's definitely a history that can sound very different depending on who you talk to. Yeah, so that's that's why I just wanted to put out a little bit there. So, Shanghai, if you're not familiar with that city. It's a pretty major city on China's eastern shores, right at the mouth of the Yangtze River, um, which is the, like, the river in mm-hmm. China. It's the longest river in Asia, the third longest river in the world, and it's actually the longest to flow in a single country. And Shanghai's the largest city in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, is it really? Mm-hmm. At least, I think by population. I'm not sure about by area. I'm not sure. Shanghai started out as a small village and became kind of the center of trading in China in its history. Mm-hmm. Mainly because the Yangtze River is like the major river. Yeah, yeah. How you get inland. Yeah, so it's it's a major port. In 1832, um, which is considered part of the Qing Dynasty, the British East India Company wanted to use Shanghai as a center for tea, silk, and opium. Mm-hmm. Uh, local officials said, heck no to that noise. So then the British started the first opium war with China, and that occurred between 1839 to 42, and this was all just to force importation of opium on the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Now you might be thinking, sir, that's like the 1800s, that's like 100 years before this movie is even made, and it's like, no, it is relevant because the ending of that war uh, came with the Treaty of Nanjing, and part of that treaty is Shanghai and four other cities being forcibly opened to British merchants. Other Western powers like the French, the U.S., even Germany, came to establish trading centers in Shanghai mm-hmm. in particular. Also of note, uh, even the Japanese were establishing like trading ports here, and What makes Shanghai very interesting to me is each foreign power set up what's called concessions. And just think of them as kind of like gated communities Mm. in Shanghai, where if you're in, say, the British concession, you don't have to follow Chinese law. It's just British law here. Mm -hmm. Same in the French concession, so on and so forth. That breeds a lot of um, resentment among, I guess, like Chinese natives. Mm -hmm. Native Chinese people were, like, it was almost like an apartheid situation. Sure, yeah. Um, where, 
you know, this park is for, like, British and non-Chinese residents only. You're becoming second-class citizens in your own city. Exactly. During this time, uh, it's all part of the Qing Dynasty, which means it's being led by this one ruling family. That all changed in 1911 with the Qinghai Revolution um, and the establishment of the Republic of China. And this arose in part due to the decline of the Qing Dynasty and also the infiltration, ironically, of the foreign powers to major cities like Shanghai. Right, sure. Bringing other, like, ideologies. Mm-hmm. Other ideas of what government could look like. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, with the 1917 revolution, uh, like the Red October revolution in Russia, many Russians fled to China and therefore to Shanghai. So you have a huge mix of people. You have Japanese, you have Chinese, you have Russians, you have British, you have Mm -hmm. French, you have German, you have Americans, like, just a really neat microcosm Mm -hmm. of different ideologies and cultures in Shanghai specifically. China is huge, and, like, let's say, like, the far northwestern part of China has nothing like this. Mm -hmm. Shanghai is incredibly unique. I can imagine all these Russians fleeing the revolution, coming to China and being like, yes, all of our our lands and our possessions and our stuff were all taken by these communists. It was terrible. And these guys in China being like, sorry, what? Communists? T- what are these communists? Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so during the 1920s and 30s, Shanghai, because it was this microcosm, became known as the Paris of the East hmm. or the New York of the West. <laughs> okay. Depending on from which perspective you're looking at. Yeah, which part of the world you're from. Yeah. Well, Shanghai modernized um, the areas reserved for the non-native Chinese. Chinese society in Shanghai was kind of divided by guilds, just to give an idea of what that looked like. Hmm. Also, because of this microcosm, it's almost like an economic bubble formed around Shanghai, while the rest of the country uh, was dealing with basically what's known as the warlord era, because when the Qing dynasty fell, China's really big, so everyone was like, ah, I shall rule this part, and I shall rule that part. Mm -hmm. Um, But Shanghai was kind of kept away from all that, not only because it's like on the far edge of the country, but because of this unique microcosm it's kind of developed. Right. During the 30s, Shanghai became the center for some new art forms, including Chinese cinema, animation, and music. Mm-hmm. But it was also the center for opium smuggling, kind of a bad reminder for what this economic security had kind of cost Chinese citizens. Mm-hmm. There were revolts against foreign powers and against the concession structure, And this actually eventually led to the formation of the Communist Party in 1921. Okay. So to just kind of paint what Shanghai, if you want to think of it in terms of class, what it kind of looks like is you have foreigners who have lived in Shanghai long enough that they call themselves Shanghai-landers. Okay. You know, this is who I am. Not Chinese, I'm I'm a Shanghai-lander. But if you're calling yourself that, more than likely you are a foreigner or a Chinese person who is, for lack of a better word, collaborating, working with the foreigners. Gotcha. Then you have 
a growing presence of the Communist Party, um, which is interesting considering that most of like Native Chinese society in Shanghai was split up according to guilds. Mm. Um, so growing Communist Party, and then in the middle there you have the criminal underbelly of the gangs, um, the opium smugglers. Um, the biggest gang being called the Green Gang. And now what's interesting is the Green Gang would be paid by the Shanghailanders to undercut uh, union organizing or communist organizing, whatever, and communists would pay the Green Gang to disrupt like business opportunity opportunities for the Shanghailanders. Sure, right. Now at this point I'm just going to like zoom out of Shanghai a little bit kind of give you an idea of, like, what communism in China kind of looked like versus the other mainstream ideology in China at the time. So communism in China mainly came about with the Western ideologies of, like, Marxism or even Leninism growing and kind of being imported in from foreigners and those ideologies being picked up by Chinese intellectuals. There's definitely a strong connection between communism in China and Russia. Um, they had a lot of solidarity for Bolsheviks, uh, a lot of support for the October Revolution in 1917. So that's kind of the growing counter-movement. The main, I, um, the main political party in China at the time is the Nationalist Party, also known as the Kuomintang, mm -hmm. um, kind of abbreviated to KMT for short. This party was founded in 1911 after the Shanghai Revolution that ended the Qing Dynasty. And this is Chiang Kai-shek. Well, um, he became the leader of the party in 1926. Okay. But everyone was like, yeah, we're super into this guy. Let's have him be the leader. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek became a bit of a, I don't want to say tyrant, but he was called Generalissimo Chiang because he ran the military side of the party. And then when he came into power, it kind of unified that role of party leader and military ruler. Mm -hmm. He led the National Revolutionary Army uh, to unite China during the warlord era. And as part of that, when he came to Shanghai, ironically, he was welcomed by um, many of the communists there. But then in April of 1927, there was the Shanghai Massacre, which actually started the Chinese Civil War. The Shanghai Massacre was a large surprise attack and violent suppression of leftist activists and Communist Party members that was carried through by the army as led by Chiang Kai-shek, um, but also the Green Gang. Okay. Estimates are rough, but between 300 to 5,000 communists were killed okay. in Shanghai. At that point, many leftists fled Shanghai. You know, you want to get the heck out of there. And later that year, uh, in response, the Communist Party founded the People's Liberation Army, also known as the Red Army, to kind of combat uh, the threat of Chiang Kai-shek's army. Hmm. And that's kind of why this event is seen as sparking the Chinese Civil War. Mm-hmm which actually takes place from this point until 1949 when the Red Army pushes the KMT out. Um, the KMT actually flee to Taiwan, and that's why there's, like, 
do you recognize Taiwan as the That's why there's country? two Chinas. Yeah. 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 So that's why that's a contentious thing. Cause... Yeah. A big press here to start World War Three button that we're going to back away slowly from <laughs> at this point. That's a different horror story. So that's the start of the Chinese Civil War. There's also a growing powder cake leading to the Second Sino-Japanese War. Now, a little bit more history here is that um, in 1931, Japan... Japan invaded Manchuria, which is kind of like a northern province of China. Uh, in 1932 is when this event called the January 28th incident occurred, and that was um, the Japanese Navy bombing Shanghai to quell protests against the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Mm-hmm. So basically people protesting outside the Japanese concession, and the Navy just bombed it. Five years after that incident, 1937, we have the Battle of Shanghai, also known as the Battle of Shanggu. Um, and that's kind of the first of over 20 fights between Chinese and Japanese forces in the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. This battle, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail here because the battle is happening the same year that this movie is being released in. Yes. So Shanghai was used as... A place to stall Japanese forces in order for China to gather its resources to kind of do a a little bit of a last stand, despite mm. it being the first battle. And the KMT figured that if we can stall this out, and it's happening in Shanghai, maybe we can get um, some sympathy from the foreigners here and we can get some foreign power on our side here. Mm. There's kind of three stages to the Battle of Shanghai. It all started in August, and the first part of the battle is like mid to late August, with the National Revolutionary Army pushing the Japanese presence out of Shanghai. Then from late August to October, the Japanese forces trying to overtake Shanghai, and the way that that battle is kind of described is, um, ironically, in a Stalingrad style. Right. Um, So you've seen, like, Enemy at the Gates, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, fighting house to house, Mm -hmm. a lot of, like, snipers. It's a very, very bloody form of battle, Mm -hmm. I guess. So it's not going well for Chinese forces. And by November, uh, the Chinese army retreated with combat with Japanese forces spreading to Nanjing, which was the capital of the country at the time. So... While Shanghai was under siege and kind of burning, basically, um, the foreign concessions somehow stayed largely intact. And they kind of became known as solitary islands. Okay. Because war is going on all around them, but in their little neighborhoods, in their little gated communities, they're fine. This makes sense, because I think if you're on the Chinese sides or you're on the Japanese side... Either way, you don't want to be the guys who bomb, like, one of the Western powers because you're still trying to, like, elicit sympathy or aid from any of them. You know, if you're Japan, depending on, I mean, not in 1937, but eventually they would be allied with Germany and, like, so on and so forth, right? So you're being very careful to not accidentally piss off some foreign power while you're fighting amongst these other people. Yeah, it's like you're having a snowball fight and then you're, like older brother is, like, walking along, and, like, you just stop throwing snowballs as he's, like, walking through. And right. Like, in front and behind, but not at him. Yeah. After the Shanghai Massacre in 1927, like I said, many leftists fled 
Shanghai. Um, but anyone who stayed by 1937 with the occupation of Shanghai, many leftists were just like out of there by then, and especially filmmakers actually uh, fled to other major cities like Hong Kong, mm-hmm. where major cities, as in cities in China that still have a Western influence involved, and Hong Kong is the perfect example of yeah. that. So, what you have in China at the time, like in 1937, is like a very fraught place with like a lot of contradictory elements going on because mm-hmm. you have this country that's at war with itself between the nationalists and the communists. And you also have the country at war with Japan from the outside. So you have a lot of factionalism and a lot of fighting going Mm -hmm. on. Um, And And then you have these solitary islands of Western presence Mm -hmm. where, like, it's business as usual. And Shanghai in the 30s was a very contradictory city in terms of being, like, this very wealthy westernized city that also had this very significant... And, you know, strong leftist movement among its intellectuals and its artists. Yeah. And that sort of brings us to this movie. This film was produced in Shanghai as part of the leftist revolutionary art movement of the 1930s, where a lot of, um, it's sort of this ironic situation where a lot of filmmakers and artists were heavily influenced by leftist thought and supported the communists, But, you know, for something like a movie, you have to have funding. And so that was coming from these capitalists. Uh, This film was produced by the Xinhua Film Company, which was founded in 1934 by Zheng Shanquan, who had originally made his money in the Peking opera scene (laughs) and um, had become very wealthy, wealthy enough to create his own movie studio uh, in 1934. And this studio was designed to capitalize on the popularity of leftist cultural sentiments in Shanghai at the time. Um, So I just find it very ironic that you have this rich capitalist who is making this business so that he can make money off of the popularity of communism. It's very similar to, like, the way that punk attire is commercialized in London in the 80s or whenever. Yeah, like... It's the same thing as, like, you how you can go into, like, I don't know, a Hot Topic and buy a Che Guevara t-shirt or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, within three years of its founding, Xinhua had risen to become, like, a major industry player. It was one of the largest movie studios in Shanghai. After the Battle of Shanghai in 1937, Xinhua was actually the only major film production company left in the city, and I don't... No, I could find no information on when in the year this movie came out. Hmm. Um, You know, I know it came out in 37. It was probably made before the Battle of Shanghai started. But I really don't know temporarily when it was released in relation to that battle. But I do know that in the days after the battle, when the city was under Japanese occupation, um, Xinhua adopted a series of strategies to try and survive under Japanese occupation. In 1939, Zhang incorporated Xinhua into an American-based company that he created called China United Pictures. So basically what he did was Zhang went to America, incorporated a business there called China United Pictures, 
and then had China United Pictures buy Xinhua so that now Xinhua was a foreign-owned company. And that was done as part of a scheme to basically get around Japanese meddling in the way that the company was run during the occupation because now it was a foreign company and thus, like, under the American concession. Yeah. However, in 1942, the Japanese decided they'd had enough of that and they folded Xinhua into all the remaining Shanghai studios as a single Japanese-controlled monopoly called China United Productions, or Zhonglian. Uh, Because of his cooperation with this, Zhang was arrested by Chinese nationalists after the end of the war, that is, the Sino-Japanese War. Ironically, he had already been arrested at that time by the Japanese due to what was considered to be divided loyalties. <laughs> so the Japanese arrested him because he wasn't loyal enough to the Japanese, and then the Chinese arrested him for not being loyal enough to China. When the nationalists freed Jiang, uh, he moved to Hong Kong. Get me out of here. Yeah. The film's director is Machu Weibung, who was born in 1905 in Hangzhou as Chu Weibung, But as he was orphaned at a young age, he decided to hyphenate his family name with that of his wife's name when they were married. Machu studied at the Shanghai Institute of Fine Arts in the early 1920s and initially worked as an actor before directing his own films starting in 1926. Song at Midnight was his eighth feature film and his first major success. Machu was familiar with American horror films, particularly those of Universal Pictures. And that's where it bears saying, since we haven't mentioned it yet, that Song at Midnight is a Chinese adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that's going to be worth reminding ourselves looking at this movie is this is 1937, so we're coming after the various iterations of the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera, but before... Hollywood's own sound color remake of Phantom in 1943 with Claude Rains. Yeah. Uh, In addition to Phantom of the Opera, he also took inspiration from Hunchback of Notre Dame, Dracula, and Frankenstein, uh, in addition to inserting pro-communist content into the story. So, interestingly, this is like... Sure, it's a phantom adaptation, but he's deliberately sourcing Universal's horror movies. Yes, for the um, stylistic content. Because there's never been a horror movie in China before, he's essentially using the style template of Universal as kind of a guideline uh, for the look and the cinematography um, while using sort of communist um, material to source the um, like the, the, the narrative and the plot. So um, in the partial sound version of Phantom from 1930, uh, selections from the Faust opera were used for the music, while the 1943 version created new operas that were based on public domain classical music melodies. Meanwhile, Song at Midnight features original songs by lyricist Tian Han and composer Sing Sing Hai. Tian Han was born in 1898 in Goyen in the Hunan province of Imperial China. And Tian participated in the anti-imperialist May 4th movement Mm. in 1919, 
but he attended the University of Tsukuba in Japan until 1921. In the 1920s, he was part of several left-wing groups, including the League of Chinese Left-Wing Dramatists. Tian wrote many plays and is considered one of the three founders of Chinese spoken drama and is credited with popularizing Western-style theater in China. In 1934, he wrote the lyrics for March of the Volunteers, which would become the national anthem of the People's Republic of China. A big deal guy. Yes, and so he's doing the lyrics for this movie. In 1966, his play Shi Yao Wan was attacked for perceived criticisms of Mao Zedong and the CCP. Tian was disparaged in the press, he was removed from his various positions, and he was incarcerated as a counter-revolutionary in sort of the opening salvos of what would become the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. He died in prison in 1968, while he and his work were eventually rehabilitated by the government in 1979, which kind of shows you, I think, how crazy the Cultural Revolution was, because you had this moment where it was like, yeah, all the people who set up communist China, well, turns out they're all not communist enough, so we're going to throw them in jail and kill them. And then, like, you know, ten years later, the government's like, actually, this dude was cool. Because he's no longer around to... Pot, like, he can be used as an icon. Yeah, he's no figure. longer actually around to cause problems. Yeah. Yeah. So the composer for the music here, Xing uh, Shinghai, was born in Macau in 1905 and moved to Singapore at age six. He was schooled in music at universities in Singapore, Beijing, Shanghai, and Paris, becoming the first Chinese student admitted to the Paris Conservatory in 1934. He returned to China in 1935, introducing Western-style musical composition to Chinese music. He wrote patriotic songs to encourage Chinese people to fight and resist Japanese invaders, and he went to Manchukuo to write songs to protest the occupation. After this, he composed music for the communist film studios in Shanghai, and uh, after the Battle of Shanghai, he fled to sort of communist HQ in Yenin, where he composed the Yellow River Cantata. The Yellow River refers to the Yangtze River. Mm -hmm. He was given the title the People's Composer in the (laughs) People's Republic of China, uh, but he died at the age of 40 of heart failure. Oof. They, they like, rushed him to Moscow for, like, surgery, but, like, he just didn't make it in time. Uh, Despite some elements in his music that were questioned, specifically, like, pre-communist musical references in the Yellow River Cantata, uh, his work largely survived the Cultural Revolution. Again, probably because he was already deceased. The film's lead actress, Hu Ping, was discovered working at a coffee shop by Tian Han. He introduced her to the world of acting, first on stage and then on film. She was 27 when she appeared in Song at Midnight and was already a household name in Shanghai. She was one of the biggest stars of the local film industry. When the Japanese invaded, she fled to Hong Kong, and then to Chongqing, when Hong Kong fell to the Japanese in 1941. After that, she sort of disappeared, and there were many rumors about what happened to her, until she was discovered to have retired to her birthplace in Chengsha during the Cultural Revolution. So Song at Midnight was released, as we said, in 1937, and was initially quite successful, uh, although critics attacked its Western cinematic style at the time. 
Yeah, it's also like so interesting how, especially for like the Communist Party at this time, you know, its origins are in Western ideologies coming to China. Mm -hmm. And there's like this constant tension of like, no, we need to be Chinese. No, we need to be more Western. Yes, absolutely. The success of the film would lead to Machu making a poorly received sequel in 1941. (laughs) Why does everyone want to make sequels to Phantom? And the film was remade in 1962, 1985, 1995, and 2005. Wow. The original film was actually believed lost until it resurfaced at the Udin Far East Film Festival in 1998. So how did they make adaptations. People just remembered that it existed. Like, they're just remakes, right? So... Okay. Machu stayed in Shanghai during the Japanese occupation, working under Japanese supervision and co-directing the controversial Japanese propaganda film Eternity, uh, which got him in a bit of trouble when the war ended, and so he fled to Hong Kong uh, and worked in the Hong Kong film industry until he died in a road accident in 1961. Hong Kong is just where everyone goes, regardless of who they're hiding from. So this movie was lost until, like, 20 years ago. Um, How are we watching this? So Song at Midnight was released on DVD by Cinema Epoch in 2007. Okay. And it's actually available for free on YouTube, courtesy of distributor Interpathé. So this is an official release with a million different subtitle languages. Oh, nice. um, On YouTube from Interpathé. We've had stuff from Interpathy in the past, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Shout out to them. Well, folks, if you'd like to watch along, you can find this many subtitled optioned version of Song at Midnight on our YouTube playlist, which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Song at Midnight from 1937, directed by Machu Weibong. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream Scene. We just finished watching Song at Midnight from 1937, directed by Machu Weibong. Sarah, what did you think of the movie? I enjoyed parts of this, and it went on way too long. Yes. It is two hours. Yes. And honestly, if you just cut each shot down by ten seconds... Or cut every, like, third shot... Yeah. Yeah, the pacing in this movie is terrible. Everything goes on slightly longer than it needs to. When the music started coming in, we started getting songs. At first, I was like, ah, this is why this is two hours long, because it's a musical, and that always makes movies longer. But honestly, no, it's an editing problem. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I found this movie super boring, and I struggled to stay awake through a large part of it. Um, There were parts that made me sit up and pay attention, but not a lot. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell everyone what it's about? Okay. Maybe before you do, we'll just like give a caveat that the subtitles are official subtitles, but 
it's almost like they're translated directly. Yeah, I think they're literal subtitles. Yeah, because sometimes sentences don't make sense. Or like things that are obviously um, figures of speech are like said in a very like matter-of-fact way. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were very literal subtitles. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of ambiguity. Not as much as when we do like the Google Translate auto subtitles, but a little bit. Yeah. So our setting is an old rundown theater, mm-hmm. and a troupe of actors have arrived at this theater to perform a play. And we've got sort of two younger lead characters in this troupe of actors. Sun Xiao-o, uh, who is our young male lead, and his girlfriend, Liu Du, who is our young female lead. And they show up and they start rehearsing for this new um, opera they're going to do. Or operetta, maybe. Sun is having a lot of problems with his singing. But luckily, there is a phantom of the opera, if you will, who is willing to help Sun with his singing and teach him. So that's sort of a neat twist on the original phantom story is that it's a, a male singer getting coached. Yeah, and it seems to come from a genuine place. Right, yeah. (laughs) So this phantom who lives in this theater, he's assisted by like a creepy, weird uh, hunchback assistant, which is like another Universal Pictures influence. And he has a regular routine, which is that he goes out at midnight every night and sings a song of unrequited love to a mysterious woman who lives in a house Next across door. the street. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a literal title, Song at Midnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sun's singing gets much better, and, uh, you know, the play opens, and he's very good, and he wants to express his gratitude to the mysterious shadow on the wall that's been teaching him how to sing this whole time. And so the shadow reveals himself as a black-cloaked figure with sort of a black sheet over his face um, and bids him come into, you know, the 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 upper catacombs of the theater um, to reveal that he is Song Dan Ping, who was a famous actor 10 years ago. And Sun's like, well, wait a minute. Didn't Song die? And Song is like, ah, let me explain to you my convoluted melodramatic backstory. (laughs) So 13 years ago... Song had a different name, which I don't really remember at the moment, Uh, and he was a member of, like, the Revolutionary Communist Party, and he had to flee due to... Communism. Yeah, the reasons why when you're a revolutionary communist you have to flee things. And he came here, and he took up acting under the name Song Dan Ping, but I guess he wrote his own stuff? Yeah. Because all of his stuff is, like, revolutionary-themed. Like, he's doing, like... French Revolution style plays so that he can talk about like liberty and equality. Like he's he's out here doing Victor Hugo stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um and he has a love interest who is Lee Xiaosha. Um Lee is actually our mystery woman whose song has been singing to at midnight every night. And Lee's father is the local warlord and doesn't really take too kindly to the political content of Song's uh, plays. So one day, him and a bunch of toughs, uh, including Tang Jun, 
who is a rival of Song's for Lee's affection, they take Song and they just, you know, beat the shit out of him. Uh, but this doesn't stop Song from pursuing Lee, and it doesn't, you know, make Lee any more likely to go with Tang, uh, who does try to assault her. So, uh, to get Song out of the way, uh, Tang decides to, you know, ambush him after a show one day and throw nitric acid in his face. Harvey Dent style. Or maybe Claude Rains, the Phantom of the Opera style. <laughs> this, you know, horrifically burns uh, Song, but to everyone's surprise, he survives. And he goes through a long period of convalescence where he's got just bandages on his face and hands. Claude Vane style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, during this period of recovery, Lee sends the younger version of Song's hunchback, like, sidekick to deliver love letters and roses and things to say, hey, get well soon, and so on, and I can't wait for the day when your bandages can come off. And I guess it's, like, almost the day when the bandages can come off. And Song's like, I can't, I can't take anymore. I have to see what these... Roses look like I have to read what this letter says. Let's just, like, take it off. It's like a day early. It won't make a big difference. So they take off the bandages, and it's exactly the scene from the 1989 Batman movie where they take the Joker's bandages off. Or rather in reverse. Sure. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, did Tim Burton see this movie? Who knows? Who knows, man? Dude's, Um, Dude's weird. So they take off Song's uh, bandages, and he walks over to the, well... Everyone in the house freaks the fuck out. And then he walks over to the mirror and sees himself and also freaks out because he is, you know... Melted. Yeah, he's melty. He's he's Two-Face from Batman comics. Only, like, one face? Yeah, only whole face. Whole face. If, if just all of Two-Face's face was face. Um, <laughs> so he, you know, goes into a melodramatic... Just tell her I die. Yeah, exactly. So they tell... Lee, that he died, which causes her to go into a melodramatic spiral, and she ends up going crazy, um, and just becoming like a catatonic shell of a woman, and her whole family basically moves away, except for her mom, who stays behind to take care of her, and thus we come to the present day, where for the past ten years, Song, with a black cape over his face has been singing a song every night to Lee, who comes out to listen to it, but she's still in this, like, catatonic state where, like, Song's dead, but he sings to me every night. And Song's like, yeah, I've been singing to her every night, but she still thinks I'm dead. I think maybe she's getting used to it. Like, (laughs) anyways. So Song says to Sun, like, hey, like, I just want her to be comforted, And, you know, she can never see that I'm this horrific thing. I can never tell her that I'm alive because then I'd have to show her, like, how horrible this all is. And that really wouldn't help her, like, mental health situation. So what I want is someone to, like, carry on the, 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 the tradition. I want, I want someone to be the, um, what's the name of the pirate from Princess Bride? Dread Pirate Robert. Right. He's looking for a Dread Pirate Robert situation where Sun can become the new Phantom of the Opera. And specifically... He wants Sun to, like, sing to Lee at midnight, but, like, not covering his face, and, like, appear to her and comfort her. So, wink, wink, nudge, yes, nudge exactly. a little bit. And become, essentially the implication is to become Lee's new boyfriend so that she can have a happy ending. 
And the other thing he wants Sun to do is also to carry on his revolutionary opera works. Um, <laughs> so uh, Sun kind of goes through with step one of the plan, which is sing to Lee. But Lee thinks that Sun is Song, and that Song is like, oh, you're alive and stuff, which is like not really how this plan was supposed to go. Meanwhile, the landlord of the theater that the troupe of actors is performing at uh, thinks that uh, Liu, uh, Sun's girlfriend, is really hot and wants her to come over and, you know, pay the rent, so to speak. Um, and it turns out that the landlord is Tang Jung, the asshole from ten years ago who threw acid in Song's face. Um, so he tries to assault Liu because why not? It's a melodrama. Yeah, he, he's evil for the sake of evil. Like, yeah, he's, it's, well, he's, it's great. He's a landlord, so he's evil. Yeah. Because uh, this is a communist movie. Never forget. Uh, she resists, you know, and she... she um, there's a, a really typical melodrama misunderstanding where Sun finds out that she was out with Tang and she's trying to be like, no, he forced me. And he's like, oh, I don't love you anymore because you betrayed me for this other guy who's like an asshole. And it's like, right, yeah, he's an asshole. So he forced me. Like, you know, it's the typical melodrama misunderstanding. Also speaking of melodrama misunderstandings, um, Song sees Sun with Liu and is like, oh, you already had a girlfriend. Okay, my whole plan that you would become my girlfriend's new boyfriend is ruined. All is lost. (laughs) Everything kind of culminates with this performance where um, basically the troupe's been doing poorly. Like, receipts have not been good. Nobody's coming to the shows. So they need to, you know, put on one last show to save the theater or whatever. And, uh... Song gives Sun one of his revolutionary operas. So they're going to do the revolutionary opera. And for some reason, it's a huge hit because I guess, you know, the people just can't get enough of communism. And this draws Tang kind of out of hiding, I guess, to the theater to see this performance. When, you know, curtain goes down at end of act one or whatever, and Liu goes into the, her dressing room to change and stuff. Tang goes into the dressing room, uh, tries to assault her. Uh, Sun comes in kind of just in time. And, you know, there's a gun, and there's some struggles for the gun, and there's some, you know, pull a gun out on Sun, but then Liu throws herself in the way just in time, and she gets shot and dies. And then Song is like, Ah, Tang Jun, you killed me ten years ago, but here I am. And I couldn't help with the previous struggle, though. Yeah. Uh, and then him and Tang have a fist fight, which is in fast motion, but still lasts like 20 minutes. It's like the longest fist fight we've had in a movie so far, but fight choreography still has not been invented yet. And it's also scored to uh, Night on Bald Mountain? No, uh, their particular fist fight is... Sorcerer's scored. Apprentice? Correct. Okay. I couldn't remember which of the two different songs from Fantasia it was. They do switch between. Yes. But the m- most of it is magicians. Yes, that's right. So they have a big fist fight that goes up into the attic, which um, predictably leads to Tang getting thrown out a window, 
by Song. Meanwhile, the audience downstairs is getting upset because Curtin hasn't come back for Act 2 uh, because they just can't handle that they're not getting that communist drama that they crave. And so this turns into a riot, and the riot sparks, like, the police showing up. And then, you know, a dude comes flying out a window and dies. So they're like, what the fuck is going on? So then, you know, everybody storms the theater and the police storm in, and it turns into a big, angry mob. So Song, you know, dashes uh, to escape, and at some point, the cops, when looking in the attic, just, like, find Song's, like, old ID from before he changed his name when he was, like, a revolutionary, just lying around, and they're like, what? A communist after him! Which, like... (laughs) I don't think that's how going into hiding works if you just keep all your old paperwork and ID around. Listen, he was dead. Sure. <laughs> so, even more reason to get rid of that stuff. Anyways, shred your documents is what I'm saying. Um, they chase him all the way to, like, I think a lighthouse on a cliff and light it on fire with him at the top of it because we we hadn't gotten Frankenstein yet into our list of universal movies that we're ripping off. Meanwhile, Sun goes to see Li Xiaoxia to explain to her, like, I'm not Sung. Sung's still alive. He just turned into a monster, though, and was afraid that you'd freak out if you saw him. But he's been the dude singing to you. Here's the whole backstory. But he's still a definite communist revolutionary, so the army is going to kill him right now. And so she kind of faints again. Uh, then Song's on top of the tower, it's burning from below, he's like, fuck it, it's the end of the movie, jumps out the window to his death in the ocean, and then that means that Sun can end up with Lee. The end. Yep, that's, that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. So, what did we like about this? Let's, let's start there. Sure. Um, I liked the moment when they take off the bandage. There's actually, like, blood or, like, something on the inside of the bandage. Mm -hmm. So it really sells that, you know, you're taking it off. And everyone's reactions were quite fantastic. Yeah, it's a good build-up to see how everyone else sees it first, because we're the camera's behind him. Yeah. Um, So it it really helps build it up, and the blood on the bandages helps, um, you know, your mind start turning, like, oh, how bad is it, right? Yeah. I even think that, like, once we turn around, I think the makeup for Sung Ping is pretty great. Like, it's a good, truly horrific makeup design. I liked it much better than Claude Rains's acid face in The Hollywood Phantom. It reminded me of the guy from Dr. X with the synthetic flesh. Yeah, had a bit of that. Um, I think, yeah, it was just, I think that was some good horror. Everything kind of around his horrific appearance was good horror. You know, the mm-hmm. reveals for that. Um, the makeup for the Hunchback is very good. It's very, like, imagine, like, Quasimodo crossed with, like, Shang Tsung, and that's basically the look of this character. Sure. Um, I think there was some really good horror imagery in this movie from time to time. Little scenes and bits that did some spooks and some scares and some tension building, uh, really well. When the acting troupe first arrives to the theater, mm-hmm. they get a little bit of a tour from the hunchback manager. I think he's like a caretaker or a janitor or something. Yeah. And he's showing them around and it's all like cobwebby. And at one moment, like the camera pans up 
and it looks like there's two bodies hanging. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought it was. And then they, like, someone screams. They send their flashlights up there, and it's, like, just two, like, mannequins. Yeah. So, yeah. like, that was, that was good. There are some good horror bits throughout, but it's not the primary focus. The focus is definitely, um, like, a gothic melodrama. Yes. Um, it is, it is much more melodrama than horror, uh, with all of the various, like, melodrama tropes. But I think it is worth remembering that that was sort of the case with early horror in other countries, too. You know, early horror in America, like even looking at the 1925 Phantom. Early horror in Germany, if you're looking at, like, the first student of Prague. Uh, you know, Mexico with La Llorona. Um, I think even though by late 30s and even into early 40s standards, this is more melodrama than it is horror. Um, if we sort of isolate it within the context of just Chinese cinema, and instead of comparing it to, you know, other late 30s movies, compare it to the early horror of other countries, it's much more in line, I think. I see where you're coming from, but then I think of, like, a movie like Das Monhez, mm. Two Monks, which was like, everyone's like, yo, it's horror, and then we watched it, and it's like, no, it's just melodrama. It's a drama itself. Right, Yes. Um, but Das Monhez came after Fantasma del Convento, which sort of proved like, okay, they, they can do horror. I'm more thinking about this compared to like La Llorona, which has a similar feel of like throwing kind of everything at the wall. <laughs> sure. Just seeing what sticks. Now that being said, it is kind of hard to say without the context of seeing more Chinese film from this period. Like I'm not familiar with this period in Chinese film at all. Mm -hmm. But this movie had like a really weird feel to me in terms of gauging its professionalism. What do you mean? It kind of felt like it was high budget, but amateur at the same time. I mean, that would track. Not saying that whoever's making it, um, Maju isn't a professional, but... Definitely high budget in the sense that the person who's rolling the studio has money to spare. Yeah, I mean, you, we see lots of crowds for the big mob scene. You know, there's a lot of production value when you can see it. The print that we had access to on YouTube is a little um, muddy at times, and it's a little hard to see, especially in the first reel. Um, but it looks like there was some money behind this. But it looks like it was being used by people who didn't quite know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is odd because this was Machu's eighth feature film. But watching it, the feeling I got was as if this was a first film. It felt like the first movie that someone makes when it's like, you've got the money and they've given you the green light and you're not sure you'll ever get a chance to make another movie, so you better just throw everything you like into this one. It felt like the first film from like a Universal fanboy sure. who had like more ambition than restraint who's just going like okay well we're gonna have this tragic love story that'll make the audience cry and i'm also gonna do all these horror bits that i like and we're also gonna throw in some you know songs here for you know that'll be great and like this and that and the other thing well i will remind you that this movie came out at some point in 1937 and even if it came out before the battle of shanghai it's not like the years leading up to 1937 were smooth and calm and mm -hmm. peaceful. 
So maybe they did feel like this was the last movie they could ever make. You know, our last chance. Mm -hmm. Also, because they are trying to do horror, but also communist propaganda, Mm -hmm. and do the communist propaganda, they're making the Phantom very sympathetic, and doing all these things, and then like, oh, but we can't have it be explicitly propaganda, so we'll make it the love story parallel, and all of this. Like, they're doing too much. Yes. What's funny about it is that they're doing too much, but not enough happens. Yeah. Like, there are just long stretches of this movie where it's like, okay, but is there going to be a plot? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, half the movie is the flashback explaining Mm -hmm. the origin. Just not a lot happens, but at the same time, it's too stuffed. It's it's too many kinds of movie and not enough movie. movie. Yeah. Where they're just trying to appeal to everybody. The thing that I thought about, you know, with it being high budget but feeling amateur was the closest thing I could compare it to was even though it's a 1937 sound film, it feels like a 1917 silent film in terms of like its cinematic and narrative conventions. I would agree with that. Yeah, like if you think about this in comparison to, you know, Avenging Conscience or uh, the original Student of Prague or like those other movies from the teens or even like the first Jekyll and Hyde or whatever, where it was just like not really a clear sense of how to focus a movie, you know, putting everything in there, not a clear sense of like, you know, you would see instances in this movie of cinematic technique of like, oh, he's clearly trying to do something with this shot or whatever, but it's not consistent. You know, mm. there isn't this, there isn't a feeling of a consistent, mature vision vision using these different cinematic techniques and tools. There's just a sense of these are things we can do. So let's look for opportunities to do them so that we can show off that we can do them, which is the other reason why it felt like a first film to me is it's like, I can Dutch angle. So I will. I did appreciate the Dutch angle we got. (laughs) Yeah. it, It really reminded me of like other early horror movies from other countries but certainly compared to like where the horror genre was at by 19, you know, 36, you know, this is, is much more melodrama. And I think you dropped a key point in that, which is that the Phantom has gone from being a sympathetic antagonist, you know, almost an anti-villain to being a full on sympathetic protagonist, you know, like there's nothing really that he does that is wrong or evil or anything other than like, he doesn't help save Sun's girlfriend because, like, he's more concerned with, like, getting revenge or whatever. But, like, that's it. Like, he's otherwise, like, he's he's the hero. He's more dark man than the Phantom. Yeah. And the idea of, like, a gothic melodrama, it's almost, like, that's basically, like, a sister genre to early horror movies. Oh, for sure. Like, where we're at in 1943, 44, not so much anymore. But in terms of their roots. Yeah, you you basically, you know, the gothic novel, mm-hmm. you know, is the grandparent of, you know, romance and horror and mystery and a few other genres. And when you look, the earlier back in history you go with those genres, the more overlap there is, right? Yeah. Like, by the 80s, there's not really a lot connecting Miami Vice and, like, Friday the 13th and, you know, um, Bonfire of the Vanities. But if you go all the way back to 1915, yeah, romance, horror, mystery movies, they're all the same thing. Yeah. So, like, I think, yeah, you make a great point that 
we have to give this movie a little bit of slack because it's the very first in its country, in yeah. its cinematic tradition. And I think even if narratively it sort of drops the ball on being a horror movie because there isn't really anything here that's like a monster or something trying to scare you or frighten you because, again, it's more concerned with either the romance or the communist propaganda. In terms of the cinematography, you can see its place in the horror canon very easily because there's so much being taken from the imagery of classic Universal movies here with darkened hallways filled with cobwebs and women in long white gowns walking over fog-filled you know, forests and things. That's kind of where I find this movie a bit of a treat. Mm. Even though, like, yeah, there was long stretches where I was just like, oh, come on, can we please just, like, move on? Yeah. Um, It was very interesting to see how those early Universal films had influenced someone and taken those iconic images and put them into their own movie. Yeah, in a completely different... And how they mixed and matched it, yeah. Yeah, in a completely different cultural context. Yeah. Right? There's something, a little bit of a unique treat of seeing, like, the imagery from, you know, these very um, European-inspired Universal movies, but with, like, traditional Chinese costume, for instance. Yeah. But definitely I wish things would move on faster in this movie. Everyone's performance kind of feels like they're in slow motion. Yeah, well, that's the 1917 feel. Right, exactly. It's that silent movie overacting thing. But everyone is, you know, you don't just say like, ah, the pain of what had happened to me was enough to drive me mad. It's like, the pain of what had happened to me the pain. was enough to drive me mad. You know, it's like that slow for every line of dialogue. Yeah. The other thing, too, is there's basically no new ideas in this movie. Well, to us. Yes, to us, exactly. Which makes it hard for us to watch it. It's hard to judge how a Chinese audience would have responded. But for us, yeah, this is all cliches that we've seen a million times before. Even the revolutionary rhetoric stuff is shallow. Yeah. Like, it's not... This is not in-depth, you know, really, like, amazing socialist propaganda. This is not something that's going to make you question, like, the validity of the capitalist world in which you live. This is a bunch of very shallow stuff about, like, fight for liberty and equality against oppression, which, like, that's not really specific to communism. Every single ideology is going to tell you that it's fighting for liberty and equality against oppression. That's that's all of them. Yeah. Um, it's just about how they're going to go about doing that. Uh, so it's it's very shallow, and I don't know. It's it's the the things that are different from the norm are the Phantom connecting with a man in a friendship and a mentor role mm-hmm. instead of the like an actual mentor role, right? <laughs> and the and as I already pointed out, doing the acid thing before Hollywood got to it. Which I don't think, you know, even if you're looking at the development of how the Phantom story changed with each successive adaptation, I don't think we can really credit the acid thing to Song at Midnight. It first appears here, and it definitely is then how the Phantom is in almost every successive adaptation. But I strongly doubt that anyone in Hollywood saw this movie from, like, the year that Shanghai got... Uh, captured by the Japanese, and thus was then lost. Like, the prince in sore shape, and I don't blame it. Like, I think it's probably more an example of parallel thinking. 
yeah. than of influence. I would agree with that. So we've, we've kind of beaten around the bush, but let's go into ranking. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, as we kind of were sort of alluding to, this isn't much of a horror movie, but I think it earns the same benefit of a doubt as the 1913 Student of Prague or The Avenging Conscience, you know, or these other kind of, like, the, the Golem. The Golem's on our list. Yeah. And, like, I would say the Golem is less horror movie than this is, but got included because of how early it was in the horror canon for Germany, right? So, speaking of which, um, that's kind of around where my range is. Okay. So, I started looking by looking for La Llorona, because even though there isn't, like, a lot of plot similarities, there was something in the feel of the two movies of kind of this feel of biting off a little bit more than they could chew. Sure. That reminded me of La Llorona. So La Llorona is at number 90 on the list currently. And I wanted to, you know, consider maybe this is better. So I started looking above La Llorona. And I was like, ooh, Black Moon. Ooh. <laughs> and then, like, The Ape Man is not a good movie. No. Uh, and then above that, there was the 1941 Black Cat. And above Which that... was okay, except for the comedy and... Yeah, it wasn't enjoyable, but it was competent. Yeah. It, it's, it's the difference between the 1941 Black Cat and this is, like, I feel this movie had ambition, but not a lot of competency, whereas the Black Cat from 1941 has a ton of competency and no ambition. And then right above that, we have Dragolum. Going in the other direction from La Llorona, if this was worse, I kind of stopped at Sex Maniac at 93, and I was like, mm, no, this is better. So that's kind of my range. My range is um, 87 to 93. So I am totally with you in this range. Um, I think it's a great idea to kind of look at La Llorona. I feel like this should go below the Black Cat and above the Ape Man because of the ambition, but the lack of competency. Okay, I'm good with that. Okay, cool. Because, like, this was able to... It had the time to be able to look at the Universal films and, like, adapt those mm -hmm. scenes and the iconography into its own milieu. Yeah. Whereas La Llorona didn't. It's 1933. Yeah. Like, I, I, maybe they could have seen Spanish Dracula, I guess. But, like, it's not quite the same. So, yeah. I think that this movie probably works a lot better as, you know, if we were doing a podcast on just Chinese horror movies, and this was our first episode, yeah. we'd be like, yeah, this was dope. Uh, the movie really suffers in comparison to, like, the wider worldwide development of the genre that's going on, which is kind of hard to, like, really put against the movie too much because of how, like, uniquely isolated the Shanghai film industry was. Especially with everything that's going on. So entering the list at number 88, we have Yi Ban Gu Sheng, or Song at Midnight, from 1937, directed by Ma Chu Wei Bung. By the way, I didn't mention this during the plot summary, but Song at Midnight is both a literal title of He Sings at Midnight and a pun, because his, his name, name is, is Song. Song. Yep. And that, that pleased me. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we might have mentioned today, as well as find our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, feel free to drop us a line on our website, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, 
or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can get the show by subscribing to it through our RSS feed on whatever your podcatcher of choice may be. If you use a service that lets you give a rating or a review for the shows that you listen to, we'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It's a way for the show to be featured and seen by more people, so we really appreciate it. Uh, If you would like to support the show in other ways, you can just tell people about it through word of mouth, whether that's sharing the show on social media or just talking about it around the water cooler. Um, Another way that you can help support us is by heading over to our Patreon, which we mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, Contributions through Patreon help us put the time into doing the show the way it needs to be done. There's a lot of research that goes into the show. I think an episode like this really shows that, and it really helps when we have, you know, that support coming in through Patreon to, you know, justify taking the time out from the other work that we do to put the effort that we know needs to go into the show. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. And another shout-out to our new patrons, Bert and Mallory. We, Mallory, really appreciate it. If you enjoy, <laughs> the face you're making right now. If you enjoy these um, jokes that Sarah makes uh, on the names of the people who become our patrons, let us know. Uh, uh, you know, Twitter or Tumblr or through our Gmail. Uh, if you don't enjoy them, also please let us know. Um, <laughs> ben out of his misery. And uh, you know, also another thank you to our patron Nick, who suggested this movie for the show. What are we watching next week? Ben. You already made a joke for Nick when he became a patron. So next week, Sarah, we are back to the regular timeline of 1944, uh, when we will be watching Voodoo Man from Monogram Pictures, starring Bella Lugosi. Oh, boy. Well, maybe it's a fun white zombie ripoff. Yeah, it might be like a devil bat, where it's really fun. Yeah. Okay, well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.